Well, good morning, Eagle Heights. I hope your family is well. I pray that you have missed flu, COVID, hail, lice, whatever's going around these days. Hope you're well. Hope you're doing well as we continue to talk about Revelation. And uh, the title today kind of gives away a little bit of what we're going through. Uh, Have you been to the doctor lately? Have you noticed a change in their language? Uh, I was at the doctor recently and the doctor said, you're going to feel some pressure. Have you heard that? Yeah, we know what that means, don't we? Ah, it's going to hurt. That's another word for pain. They just replaced a word. And I understand why they do it. I get it. Because if you tell someone they're going to feel pain, they're going to tense up. I, I'm, the pressure, I guess, means it's not as stressful and they're more receptive, I guess, to the, I don't know, the needle that's going in wherever. Uh, I, I have no idea. Uh, I, I understand why they're doing it, but I, they, I'm not fooled by it anymore. It doesn't work on me any longer because I know what it means. Because this is going to hurt. But we've done the same thing in the church. Tell me the last time you heard a message on tribulation, trial, suffering, persecution. Isn't it funny how we've changed language too? We don't even talk about those things anymore. If they are, they're just a sub-point of a message or they're a storyline somewhere else or they're in another country, not something we face. And we're focusing now on how Christ can improve our life. But the problem with that is is that Christ doesn't just want to improve our life. He wants our lives to evolve around Him. He is our life. And that may mean that there's a price that needs to be paid someday, and He needs His people ready to pay it. But if God is only here to improve your life, would you pay that price? Because we see the difference between where we are now in the church and where the church was years ago. Acts chapter 5 is a great story. <clears throat> the apostles had been drug in. Actually, it was James and John taken to before, uh, it was Peter and John taken before the Sanhedrin, and they were told, don't preach in Jesus' name anymore. Stop it. They let them go. Well, they didn't shut up. They continued to preach, and all of Jerusalem was beginning to be filled with the message So much so, people were coming from all around just to be healed or hear the gospel. And the Sanhedrin, the high council, got so upset that they arrested all of the apostles in chapter 5. All 12 got arrested. They threw them in jail. Little did they know overnight, an angel came and let them out. Told them next morning to go preach in the temple again. So they convened the whole council. This is a big deal, man. This is like everybody... Across the board, Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, the whole group is there. And they send the jailer to parade them in, and he comes back empty-handed. I can see the guy walking in going, we have a problem. In other words, Mike, look behind you. I I understand what was going on there. Things aren't working right. Things aren't clicking according to schedule. Sorry, I was picking on Mike a little bit there. And all of a sudden, they go, oh, wait a minute, we found them there in the temple preaching. They go, re-arrest them, they bring them in. They said, stop preaching in the name of Jesus. Peter speaks for them. He says, guys, it's better for us to obey God than you. And Jesus is the only way of salvation. And we all need to repent. Or you all need to repent. Angered them so bad, they wanted to kill them. Kill them. Finally, they get order in the room. They kick out the apostles. Put them in a side room. And Gamaliel says, guys, let me give you some advice. If this is of man, it's not going to work. It's going to die. But if it's of God, we can't stop it. So they ordered, listen to this closely, I'm telling the story to get to this verse. They ordered the disciples flogged, beaten with whips. 
And they released them, telling them not to preach in the name of Jesus. Now, as they're leaving, listen to the response of the apostles. It's verse 41 of chapter 5. The apostles left the high council rejoicing that God has counted them worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. Now, stop and let that resonate with you one second. Think on those words one more time. They rejoiced because God counted them worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. How different is the apostles and the early church's perspective of tribulation compared to today's Christian's view of tribulation? See, to the early believer, tribulation did not mean ill health. We're all going to get sick. We're all eventually going to die. That's not what it meant. It didn't mean poverty. Uh, to be tribulation just mean I'm going to be poor. Tribulation didn't mean the loss of relationship. Here's what it meant to them. It were sacrifices they would have to make and perils they had to face because of their belief in Jesus Christ. They knew to be a believer was going to cost them. And they were ready to pay whatever price that was laid before them. They didn't matter the tab. They would lay down and pay the cross, because the early believer fully understood that they were not exempt from tribulation. Instead, they were subject to it. Now, we have to be honest. And this is a blessing from God. It is not bad. It is honestly great. We live in a relatively persecution-free country. Now, persecution is increasing. We see it. Very much verbal, mocking, uh, some judicial starting, some economic um, and we've seen some physical. We've seen some people beaten for their faith in this country and other things. But for the most part, we are free to worship. Is anybody afraid to be here today? No. You're not afraid that they're going to march in and arrest us, confiscate our property, throw us and separate us from our family. Are, are you afraid to speak about your faith? Are you afraid to worship? We're free to do those things. We're even free to obey God. We're free to do these things. So we live in a time that is incredibly rare. We live in a time where there's not a lot of cost for our faith. But I need you to understand that is not the norm throughout history, nor is it the norm in the future. We're living in a moment of incredible grace to take opportunity to talk about the love of Christ and to share that love and to show that love to those around us. But as we proceed into the future, we're coming to a point our faith is going to cost us. Matter of fact, we're going to see that today. And if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. As we look at John, now getting into the court, past the introduction, getting into the meat of the letter as he starts talking. And notice where he is. I, John, verse 9, your brother and fellow participant in this tribulation, and kingdom and perseverance in Jesus was on the island of Patmos, called Patmos, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write on a scroll what you see. Send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. See, today, guys, we need to stop and we need to do something. We need to rethink tribulation. 
We need to rethink tribulation because tribulation is essential for our spiritual maturity. It's essential. If it's not there, we won't grow. And I want you to see that today. It's going to need to change how we approach it, how we respond to it, and understand the absolute kingdom implications of it. But before we take a step, I need you to see what the early church is experiencing. For you to understand Revelation, if you understand what's going on, the early church is experiencing intense persecution. And I mean intense persecution. By the end of the first century, Christianity was hated in Rome. And I cannot even begin to describe how much it was hated in Rome. It started when Nero burned down part of the city so he could rebuild his own palace. He wanted the biggest palace ever built. He wanted that done. The Senate said no, so he set fire to that section of Rome, and then he blamed it on the Christians. That's when the intense persecution began. But it only escalated the further we went into the, to the end of the first century, and now these Christians are being persecuted in every single possible way. They're being persecuted politically, because Christians are seen as disloyal to Rome. You must understand what that means. To be a good citizen, you are required to pledge allegiance to Caesar and to Rome. Guys, I cannot even begin to tell you how much Roman thinking was in their concept, how much this, just the nation of Rome itself was worshipped. The city of Smyrna, which we'll look at in a few weeks, so worshipped Rome that they built a tabernacle, a place of worship of just Rome, where you worship the nation of Rome. Being a citizen meant everything. Loyalty was the highest regard. You pledged your loyalty, and you would symbolize that by pinching incense and putting it on the altar, declaring Caesar to be God, and saying, I'm loyal to Rome. But a Christian couldn't do that. A Christian wouldn't do that. In their eyes, and in a Roman citizen's eyes, Christians were the most disloyal citizens or disloyal people because they refused to acknowledge Caesar or Rome as the ultimate authority, which meant two things. Which meant two things. They claimed there's a power greater than Rome, and they would obey their God and disobey Rome. And that made them a threat. So politically, Christians are a threat to the Roman Empire in a lot of Roman citizens' minds. They were also persecuted religiously because they worshipped one God, an invisible God, not the pantheon of gods. They didn't bow to idols. It was absolutely ludicrous to Romans to think that there is just one God and that this one God is invisible and that he demanded complete loyalty and that you weren't allowed to worship any gods. In other words, He's in charge, you're not. But they rethought the entire focus of worship. Because in Roman thinking, I had to get the gods on my side. The gods were disinterested. I either had to favor them so they would give me something, or I had to placate them so they wouldn't hurt me. That's how they had to think. But this is a God who's your father, who's loving, who died, foreign, completely foreign. So none of the Christians would offer any pagan sacrifices. But that meant something to the Romans. If there's any disaster, drought, earthquake, famine, it's because the gods were angry. And who were they angry at? Christians, because they wouldn't offer sacrifices. 
So what have to happen to those Christians? We have to persecute them to please the gods so we can get their favor back. So in their thinking, persecuting a Christian brought them favor. So they're persecuted socially or politically, religiously, and also socially. Christians were the lowest class of society. They were the slaves. Now, and here's a problem with that. They had this incredible teaching that all men are equal before God. So Christianity is hated by the aristocracy, those with power, money, fame, and influence. They didn't like them. Because in their teaching, what do they teach? All men are equal before God. So that slave and that powerful man are on the same footing at the cross. They hated that teaching. They also were very subject, suspect of Christians because they're slaves. The only time they can meet is way early in the morning before work or late at night after work. So they're gathering late at night. And they can, they're subversive to Rome. They honestly believe the teaching on slavery that, that all are equal would cause a slave uprising, even though Christianity never proposed anything like that. They thought this is going to cause an uprising, that we're going to have to squash them. So masters would what? Beat their Christian slaves to force them away from this religion. But it wasn't just socially, it was economically. Christianity was a threat to anyone who was in the idle business. Matter of fact, there's a there's a, an aristocrat, or a, he was actually a magistrate. His name's Pliny the Younger. Uh, and he wrote a lot of letters. Now, the reason he's named Pliny the Younger, because he's raised by his uncle, and his uncle's name was Pliny the Elder. So really, his name's Junior. That's how we would say Junior. He's Pliny the Younger. But he wrote the emperor a lot. He gave him updates a lot. This is one of the things he wrote in one of his letters. Listen to this. The pagan temples are deserted. And those who sold sacrificial animals have few buyers. He's talking about the impact Christianity was having on the, his, his area that he oversaw, that Christianity was shutting down the idol worship. Now, here's the problem. In order to sell in any city in Rome, you had to be part of a guild. We would call them unions today, but it's not the same. It's, a, it's much more thuggish, much more religious than a union. Union was created to protect workers. Guilds were created to control workers. Big difference. The guild system said this, if you want to sell, you have to be part of our guild. There's a problem though. Every guild had a god. And you were required to sacrifice to that god. That was usually held at their feast, which they had randomly, which would always include raucous behavior and illicit sexual sin. And when these guildsmen became Christians, they refused to go. So what they told them was this, either you participate or you're out and we will starve you. And they would look them in the face and said, I would rather have poverty than turn my back on Christ. Take my business, take my money, take it all. I don't care. I would rather be an impoverished slave serving Christ than bowing out a false God and offending him. So these people are under extreme persecution across the nation of Rome. Matter of fact, Paul himself, or excuse me, John himself, is under extreme persecution. Look where he's at. He's exiled. Go back to verse 1. He's on the Isle of Patmos, which is a penal colony. It is a labor camp. Now notice what he says that's going on in this place. <clears throat> he said, I am a participant in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance. Now understand something. He's persevering under tribulation. I love that word 
persevere, it means to hold up under. It actually means to patiently endure difficulties without giving up. So what persecution is he going through? Well, he's got harsh labor. He's got, he, he, he's got insufficient food, insufficient clothing. He is sleeping on bare floors. And oh, by the way, in case you haven't caught it yet, he's in his 90s. He should be in a nursing home, not a prison. He should be at assisted living, not incarcerated. But he's on there, and he's in there for one reason. Why is John there? He says very clearly, because of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. At some point, they say, give up Jesus. And Paul, or John, looked at them and said, I refuse. Do you remember earlier we talked about when he's going through a first century service, and he said, behold, what he was saying was this, Jesus is worth everything, no matter what it costs me. He's proving that right now. He's saying, I am with you, brothers. I'm in prison for the same reason. I am standing for the testimony of Jesus Christ. We just sang a song that Christ is enough for me. How far are you willing to take that statement? John has taken it all the way to a prison floor in his 90s, and he's saying simply this, I will follow him regardless. The early church is experiencing intense persecution, but they knew something. That tribulation is the appointed destiny of every believer. It is the appointed destiny of the believer. 1 Thessalonians 3.3, if you got your notes, look at that. It's got an incredible verse on there. 1 Thessalonians 3.3, could you guys, is it can, can come up on the screen? Thank you guys. So that no one would be unsettled by these trials, these tribulations, for you know quite well that we are destined for them. Now stop right there. Let's understand that. First off, that word trial, tribulation that's there, it, it comes from a Latin word called tribulum. A tribulum was a heavy timber with spikes through it that they used to drag across wheat. And what it did was it separated the wheat and the chaff. It, it, that had to be separated so you could get the grain, the fruit out of the wheat and get the weed away from it. So they'd roll it over, roll it over, and then they would separate those two things. They would take the wheat through tribulation to get the fruit out of it. Now notice what he's saying. It says, you're going to go through these tribulations. They are destined for us. Notice what that means, guys. We see that phrase, they're destined for us. We need to understand what it tells us about tribulation. It doesn't mean that, tribulation doesn't mean that things are out of control in your life. Tribulation means that they're under God's control. Why? Because that word destined means appointed. These aren't accidents. God's allowing them. God's bringing them in. God's making them happen. Jesus said something incredible. He said, do you want to know why the world's going to hate you? Because they hate me. And a servant is not greater than his master. If they hate me, they're going to hate you. When you follow me, they're going to hate you. So much for God just improving my life. But notice that these also have an incredible benefit to that. They, they, they allow us for an incredible purpose. Not only does tribulation mean that, that things are out of control, but under his control, tribulation shows something else. Tribulation shows you're under his grace, not that you've fallen out of his favor. It's funny, I grew up a very, very legalistically. And if anything bad happened, you got questioned. Is there sin in your life? It's like the spotlight got put on you. 
And you were made to feel like you've sinned. You've done something wrong. That if any tribulation strikes you, then obviously there's unconfessed sin. The more I've studied, the more I've realized that is more of a reflection of a Roman theology than a Christian theology. That's what the gods of Rome demanded, not the God of the Bible. Doesn't mean that you've fallen out of favor. It actually means you've fallen under his grace. Look at what Romans 3, 5 says, 5, 3 and 5 says. And not only this, but we exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. Notice what tribulation brings about. We're being purified. The tribulum, the tribulation is separating us apart. God's grace is removing something from us and it's creating something new. It's bringing about perseverance. Patience is what it's called. Jesus' brother James, who was martyred for his faith, said this in his book, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various tribulations, knowing this, that the testing of your faith works patience. And I love what he said next. Let patience have its work, that you may be complete and entire, lacking nothing. Isn't it funny? The very first thing God wants to put in our life is perseverance, is to be able to hold up, to let patience do its job. So something else can be built in us, which is what? Proven character. Proven character. Now understand, this is more than just consistency. This isn't just consistency. This is a consistent trust in the goodness of your Father. Stop right there. It's important. Proven character is a character that has built itself upon God's character, God's goodness, God's nature, Him being our Father. I've settled the issue in my life that God is good and God is my Father. So that when I face tribulation, when I face trial, when I face these persecutions, and I ask the question, what is God doing? I'm not answering it with, well, what is God doing? It's not a doubtful response where I sit back and I say, okay, <clears throat> obviously this bad thing's happening. So that means either God isn't listening or God doesn't care or God's not there. Do you understand if you're not settled on the fact of who God is and your character is built upon that, when tribulation hits, you will be adrift in a sea by yourself. But when you absolutely know that God is there, God has got this, and God is in control, you're anchored at the depths and no storm can shipwreck you. Because you're not in your own hands, you're in His. This isn't just happening. This isn't God's angry. This is God's favor resting upon you. So when you ask the question, what is God is doing, you automatically know that God is not working to give you your definition of happiness. God is not here to work and meet the request of what I think is going to make me happy. Nowhere has he promised a successful career, an overflowing bank account, a dream home, or a problem-free life. Any pastor that teaches that is a man who's usually worth millions, and he's taking money from poor people. That should be a problem for you. If he lives in luxury and his flock does not, maybe he should turn around and give some of that money back. That's a little sideline from Brad. But in this, he's not offering you less. Hear this. 
He's just not offering what you want. He's not offering you less. He's actually offering you more. See, God isn't concerned about our happiness. He's concerned about our holiness. When we're holy, happiness follows. When I mean holy, don't get rid of all your pictures. Get rid of all the pictures. I had to set aside legalism. I had to set aside performance. I had to set aside fake Christians who judged other people. Three-piece suits, hellfire and brimstone. Do I believe in eternity and there's hell and there's separation? Absolutely. But the judgment that comes and what I design as holiness is not the picture God portrays. It is a God who loves you so much he'll give his own life. But he's also a God who hates sin so much he will deal with it. And he loves you so much he's giving you as much opportunity as you can to escape from it. But you cannot have it and him. There is one God. And he alone shall be served as God. He does not compromise, but he is compassionate. He does not pull punches, but he's full of mercy. He does not lie, but he backs up everything he says. He is unlike us in every way, but he loves us. And what he offers you is more of himself. More of himself. More of himself. Because what's really empty inside of you, what's really missing is that emptiness, that hole that you just can't be satisfied. The only thing that fits that hole is Jesus and he alone. Nothing else. Only God. You were created for it. You were designed for it. But sin has been keeping you from him. Even after salvation. Tribulation is there to do what? Separate us from the one thing that is keeping us away from God, which is sin. He's purifying us. Several years ago, we went on a vacation to Silverton, Colorado with my boys. My my boys are young. We went up in the mountains on four-wheelers going through those silver mines. And my older son started finding all these rocks with shiny streaks of pyrite in it, thinking it's silver. And he loaded, loaded, I don't know how many boxes of rocks into camp, wanting to take them all home. Now, as a father, I know I can't take any of these home because I know what's going to happen. They're going to end up in my garage, and I'm never going to be able to throw them away and be tripping over them for the next 10 years. So I said, son, you know, the only way you're going to get this out to find silver is you've got to put it into a blast furnace. You've got to have it smelted and burned down. The next day, my son comes back with a design of how we're going to build a 3,000-degree furnace in our backyard in Moore, Oklahoma. I said, son, I think we've got to get a permit for that. He goes, the city doesn't have to know. But for us to be purified, there has to be tribulation. Why? So the thing that's keeping our hearts and minds from God can be removed and we find more of Him. We experience more of Him. We see Him as He truly is. And that leads to hope. Hope that does not disappoint. But notice what happens next. As we're being purified, notice what happens next. Because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts. Now stop right there. It doesn't say love for God, does it? It's the love of God. 
The love God has, the love that God is, the love that God has for everyone is poured out in us. And we're also being what? Controlled by the Holy Spirit. When the love of God fills you and the Holy Spirit fills you, what do you think is going to happen next? The gospel is coming out. You're going to talk about Jesus. You're going to tell about how amazing he is, what he's done for you, who he is, how real he is, how powerful he is. And guess what's going to take place? He's going to be glorified. How do you know? Every single time we see the tribulations, what happens? Verse 3, we exult in our tribulations. What did the disciples do? They rejoiced in their tribulations. What did James tell us to do? Count it all joy. When the world is pulling away every single thing that they believe is important, everything they're building their life upon, everything that matters to them from money to position to social status to their religion, their beliefs, their God, to their everything, and they're stripping it from you and pulling it from you, and you look at them and you say, I don't care because you can't take Jesus. All of a sudden, their gods are now paling in existence. Their gods are seen for what they are. Their life is exposed in the light of that truth. And all of a sudden, Christ is glorified in a person who said, Christ is everything. And there's not a cost I won't pay. You can take it all, but you can't have him because I belong to him. He does not belong to me. And on that moment, when you stand there and the price is paid, the gospel is spoken without a word being said. And two kingdoms are clashing. As the kingdom of God begins to shine, the kingdom of Satan is exposed, and the lies men have believed are being totally unraveling before them. And they must do one of two things. Repent or retaliate. Some will repent. Others will retaliate. So in that retaliation, here's what we know. The gospel has been rejected. I can rejoice in two things. I'm being made more like Christ. And my life matters. But I can respond in prayer because there's someone who's telling Christ no. They're rejecting the Savior. And they need Him. Deeply, personally, intimately, they need Him. It's a moment for you to be salt and you to be light. We can take a little mockery. We can take a little ridicule. We can take a little social media post that tells us we're stupid or we're foolish or we're liars. Don't care. Rejection, repentance, or retaliation is what we're seeing. Pray for that person. That's why Christ said pray for your enemies. Pray for them when they persecute you. Pray for them when they wrongfully use you. Pray for them when they spread rumors about you and lie about you. Pray for them. Why? Because they're rejecting Him. And they need Christ because we know the end. It purifies us. It preaches the gospel and proclaims His glory. That's what tribulation does. It's essential for our maturity. So if you're facing it right now, rejoice. Don't rejoice in the tribulation. Rejoice in what God's doing in that tribulation. 
God, this isn't out of your hand. This is under your control. This isn't you're, uh, you're mad at me. This is I, under your favor. You're separating me from sin. You're separating me from things I can't control, from attitudes I don't want there, from desires that are not yours, from things that I really don't want in my life. You're pulling them out because I can't. Thank you. But this is the best part. Because tribulation prepares you to encounter Jesus. Point two. Tribulation prepares you to encounter Jesus. John is sitting there in Patmos, in a cell, on the Lord's day, worshiping Christ. And all of a sudden, he hears the voice that he hasn't heard in 60 years. It's like a trumpet. Trumpets were important in the Old Testament. They announced an an important event or a sacred situation or something very important. And John heard Jesus. He heard him. He heard him too. I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of the trumpet. But then John turns and he sees Jesus. We're going to talk about that next week. But I need you to stop right here. He hasn't laid his eyes upon Jesus Christ in 60 years. And when he turns, the familiarity of his best friend is right there. But the divinity is such that he falls down as if he's dead. But then John did something incredible. John obeyed Jesus. Write these things. Write these things. When we are going through tribulation and we're being purified and we're being prepared, we're going to encounter Jesus in a way. Why? Because we're being separated from what we were and how we act and how we live so we can now see him. And what is he offering himself? Purpose, intimacy, love. He's looking at you and saying, I want to show you more of who I am and how I want to work through you. This morning, as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, for some of you, this message is about one thing. You have to answer a really important question. Is Jesus really enough for you? Let's start with the believers. I want to deal with you first. Let's be honest. Some of you are going to be a little bit like Lot's wife. You're so in love with the world that you're going to turn back because you think there's something in this earth that's going to meet a need in your life. Whether it's money or fame or pleasure or sex, pornography, addiction, I don't know what it is. But you've poured yourself into that trying to get a need met and all you're saying to Christ is you're not enough. Do you understand what you're saying to Jesus as you're a believer, His child, I need an idol other than you to make my life work. I'm going to love something more than you because it's more valuable to me than you. And I'm going to depend it up on you more than you. So I'm going to set it up in my own life. I don't have a little chapel on my property. I have one in my heart. And on the throne is that idol. And how do I know I have it? Because you obey it and you know it's wrong. You're looking to it to make something out of your life. To give your life meaning, purpose. For some men it's pornography and you bow down to it every day. 
whether it's acceptance, cheap thrill, escape, alone, I don't know what it is, but you're turning to it instead of God. It could be money. You're given 80, 90 hours a week to money, and you have no time for God. Matter of fact, that your business, your practices are so unethical that if someone were to say you were a Christian, your employees and those around you would be shocked. But you claim the name of Christ because you love money so much, you're going to do what you got to do to get it. It may be popularity or fame. You live on social media to portray a world that isn't real, a marriage that is not good, a parenting situation that isn't true, and you're dishonest. You put the best image of yourself out there because that's what you really want it to be, but you can't admit the truth that it's not. So on that day, when someone says, is Christ enough? And you have to let go of that? Will you? We have to decide now if Christ is enough. This is not a moment of Judgment, it's a moment of grace where we come to God and say, God, I'm relying on something else to bring me satisfaction other than you. And I'm sorry. I repent. I want you. You are enough for me. I have decided to follow you. Not it. Some of you need to have that conversation with God right now. You may be here and you're not a believer, man. This is the first time you've sat and heard something like this. But you heard about a God who loves you. A God who's for you. A God who wants to be your father. But there's sin separating you. So how do I deal with that sin, man? How do I get that out of my way? Well, you can't work harder, try harder, be religious. None of that works. You got to come and do three things. You have to admit to God that that's exactly who you are, that you're a sinner. You have to admit that the price of death, which he says is the price, you deserve. Then you must believe that Jesus' death on the cross counts for you. You must believe that when he rose out of the grave, that life is available to you. And then you must confess something, that you want that life. You receive it from him. And he's not just to be your Savior, he's to be your Lord. It's not just about getting out of hell. It's about you want him, that you've decided to follow Jesus. If that's you this morning and you want to pray that with me, pray it with me. Say, dear Jesus, I have decided to follow you. I admit I'm a sinner. Just say that to him. I admit I'm a sinner. I admit I deserve death. I've earned it. I believe That your death on the cross is the only way to remove sin. And I believe your resurrection is the only way to life. So Lord, I'm, I'm confessing, I'm asking. Can I have your life? By faith, trusting only in you, I receive the gift you're offering. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. As your heads remain bowed, your eyes remain closed. Let me pray over you. Father, for the Christian who's trapped, oh Lord, I know what that's like. I know what it's like to put up a front and be fake. I know what it's like to know the truth and it's not real in me. I know what it's like to live in private rebellion but have a public face of 
obedience. It's miserable. Oh God, it's so miserable. (laughs) Man, that's the most empty times in my past. When I knew I was convicted, but I refused. I was so rebellious, God. I was so convinced that this world had something to offer me. God, thank you that as I've gotten older, you've been removing that. Because God, I can't remove it on my own. Today, Lord, as these words are being spoken, let this be for some the first opening moment where God is calling them to say, I want to remove this. I want to take it out. Let them be willing to do that. Let them willing to allow you to work, to come to you and say, I've decided to follow just you. For those who prayed to receive you today, God, we celebrate that. We celebrate their decision to believe in you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. We'll give them some instructions in a minute, but we celebrate that decision. Father, we need you. Now, God, I want it in prayer for the last thing. Next week, God, we see the risen Lord. I'm already under the weight of that, knowing there's no way In my abilities, I can portray this event in any form. There's not a word available. Even John had to describe it with words such as like, because you're so unique. But let the reality of who you are now so wash over us over the next seven days. That it forever changes our focus, our life. Because you are not who we see in the Gospels anymore. You are the risen Lord. And it is the risen Lord that is empowering the current church. Give us eyes to see. Give us hearts to understand. Give us wills ready to obey. God, I'm praying now that you empower me because I can't do this without you. There's no way. Thank you, Father. Thank you for the music. Thank you for the worship. Thank you for this incredible family. In your name we pray. And God's people said, amen.